The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's one of the favorites of our guest today. He's a superior musician who can play piano, guitar, French horn, alto horn, who knows what else. Uh, he's worked with the Metropolitan Opera, the New York Philharmonic, dozens of Broadway plays, and also the Blue Man Group. Uh, but he's now more than just an accomplished musician. He's composed scores for films such as Handsome, Two Birds, uh, The Hollow, and the recently released film Hollowed Ground from director Miles Dolak, who was a recent guest of ours. His selections for today encompass a wide variety of genres, and I'm sure it's going to delight a lot of our listeners to uh, hear the variety of cues that we're going to play. So I hope all our listeners uh, please join me in welcoming Clifton Hyde to the program. Hi, Clifton. Hey, Frank. How's it going? Good, good. I've been looking forward to this because... I always like talking to uh, to composers because I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert. I, I can't read music. I don't I don't know I know very little about music. I just know what I like. So it's always a great opportunity for me to learn more about the whole process. So well, appreciate you making time to be with us today. Well, we, thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, we always kind of start off. I, I like to learn a little bit about my guests. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe. Just tell us a little bit about yourself in particular, kind of like, you know, growing up in the early years and, and those sorts of things. Well, I was uh, born in uh, 1976 in a small town in South Mississippi. Uh, grew up uh, basically just stuck in the library, reading books and finding my way around the campus where my grandfather was a professor at the university. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, reading and Got way into music really early and uh, picked up an instrument and never looked back. <laughs> and, and a list of the instruments, is that a complete list? I mean, because and it's kind of diverse, too, because it's some of these instru- instruments are entirely different. How many how many different things do you play? I, I haven't done an inventory of it uh, uh, to know exactly what at all I play. I, oh, wow. I took it. I think I think one of the things that about that I, I get asked this question a lot about the whole instrument thing and for whatever reason when I was a small child I have like distinct memories of 
my grandfather taking me to see uh, the Camp Shelby Army Band do the 1812 Overture with the cannons and stuff when I must have been oh, wow. five, six years old. Yeah. So uh, horns and uh, keyboards uh, and, and that uh, left, you know horns and strings and and all that and at the same time my uncle David was playing guitar at family functions so I was you know those were Bruce Springsteen songs and Paul Simon Bob Dylan and those resounded with me and the sound of the guitar and of course you know getting Beatles records and Van Halen records when I was a kid and then TV I heard all these sounds. And I, you know, I didn't have any sort of formal music education. I just kind of figured it out on my own. Really? Messing around with my, my uncle's guitar. Yeah. Uh, so I never really made the distinction between French horn and synthesizers and Eddie Van Halen guitar. I just thought, okay, well, it's all music and it's all different songs and dialogues. So I just figured if I learn music, like just learn the notes and the rhythms and everything, I can always put that to different sounds. And, you know, and then it, it just became this kind of thing when I, once I finally got over the hurdle of playing instead of a piano, and I knew, well, CEG is the, this chord on a guitar, so it's got to be that chord on a piano, and then find the note, and then it kind of worked. I'm like, huh. So oh, no. basically would pick up random instruments and where are the notes, and then I'd just use what I already knew about music yeah. to, to make it work. Yeah. Now, to this day, have you had any formal training? Uh, well, I ended up, you know, going to, to music school and, and there I studied mostly composition and band leading and arranging. I've had, of course, I've had like lessons here and there, but I've never took like the deep pedagogy of any one instrument, you know. And I've wow. had a lot of lessons with like friends of mine, you know, if I wanted to to get some tips on playing the French horn, why not talk to my friends in the, the Metropolitan Opera to give me some pointers here or there, you know? So no one, no one is completely self-taught, but I never went through any sort of formal pedagogy as wow. far as playing instruments. It, it's in your DNA. It m- must obviously so. <laughs> be in your DNA. So now how did you end up in New York then? Because I, you're basically, I mean, you're based in the tri-state area, right? In New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in Brooklyn. I've been there for since uh, right around 2001. So, but the way that happened was I, I left Mississippi as soon as I could, and this would be probably 96 or so, 95, 90, 96. And I ended up going up to Michigan where I finished uh, school and uh, spent about nine, ten months in Chicago trying to do the music scene there. Whereupon I started meeting a lot of other people uh, that had had jobs in New York and Chicago going back and forth. And my first, my first thing is I got a, a two week contract to play a concert in New York with the Merce Cunningham dance company, which is this very famous avant-garde dance company in downtown New York. Hmm. Uh, and so I went over there and played with a percussion friend of mine from college. And I just had a really good feeling about it. And I was like, I, I think I need to be here. This is this is this fits my my mindset a lot more than Chicago did at the time. So two weeks later, I was in a you know I was in a U-Haul dragging everything I had from Chicago uh, <laughs> with $650 to my name, trying to find a place to live before I arrived in Brooklyn. So uh, and this is before cell phones and iPhones were like ubiquitous. So I, I 
had a copy of the Village Voice, and I would just stop at gas stations and call numbers in the back that had apartments for for rent. And lo and behold, uh, about two hours outside of New York City, I found a spot and drove straight to it and moved in. Wow, wow, great story, great story. Well, <laughs> let's um, let's get into some of these cues that you've chosen. Um, sure, sure. The the first one of which is um. A composer I'm a little bit familiar with, but but not not as much as I probably should be. Uh, Elliot Goldenthal. You had chosen the main theme from the film Heat. Can you uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about uh, why you wanted to include that in your list of favorites? Well, a lot of a lot of the choices I made were uh, I was really just thinking of ones that were like influential in me because you know growing up in the time I did you know Star Wars, E.T., all the great John Williams stuff was you know was I was singing along to Superman as a kid in my underoos, but <laughs> it, it never seemed like something attainable. I never thought I'd learn how to, to write for orchestra. And when I really started getting more into music that wasn't just pop and rock, uh, a lot of these cues and a lot of these movies were stuff where I, I heard and went, I can do that. I already have the mindset and the skills to make that happen. So when he came out, I was probably either a freshman in college or a senior in high school and i thought it was so cool because goldenthal used chronos quartet and members of u2 and brian eno to to create this kind of atmospheric mix of rock instrumentation that played classically and to and created this mood that was just unlike anything i'd heard about and when he when he took and what i love about this piece the, the opening score is he took a group of six electric guitar players and had them play with bows and fingernail files to create this bed. So what huh. sounds like a synth is actually rock, rock guitars being played in a completely different manner. And the, it just it it really fit where, where my brain was at the time. And it's always been very inspiring cue and in the sound of this particular score. Fantastic. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to that. This is uh, the main title from the film Heat. Uh, and it's written by Elliot Goldenthal.
Well, I guess my next natural question to ask you then is that you obviously you became a very uh, successful session player, for lack of a better better term of it. What was it that that uh, got you into thinking, hey, I you know I, I want to write film scores? What was there like a particular moment or a or a process that you went through that got you thinking, hey, I I'd like to do this? Well, the the first. I guess that I, I got into doing film score and TV scoring from actually being a session player. So I was lucky enough when I first moved to New York that the studio system was still going, that mm-hmm. you still had the ability to be a session player. And I was in that last generation of people that would leave the house with four or five different instruments. And then I'd go to three or four different recording studios and I never knew what I was going to play. I'd just get the sheet music or talk to the composer or band leader and the next thing you know you're you're on this record or score and when i did this film this uh for um zakir hussein who's a very well-known indian film composer mm-hmm. uh, and i really got to see it because it was a small ensemble i was playing piano for that and i and i was like oh like watching him do it and kind of construct it in real time and get away from the page and i was like i really started enjoying that uh, and then the next thing you know, I I end up doing more and more little tiny sessions like that. And some friends of mine from Blue Man, uh, we got in touch with this uh, arts art house theater called Nighthawk in Brooklyn, where we started writing live scores for silent movies from the 20s and 30s oh, wow. or, and earlier. And then also taking modern films. Uh, cult classics and just turning the volume completely off and no sound, no subtitles, and then writing a 90 minute score to be played live. And then we started doing, you know, four or five of those a year. Oh my. That just, that's when it really took off. And I really got to hone my chops as far as writing for scenes and making scene changes and a and mood and atmosphere. And then it just kind of led into that. And it, it was very organic the way it happened. I didn't, I didn't plan on that being the thing. Yeah. And the thing that amazes me that you reminded me of, too, that I've mentioned this before, but just to remind our listeners to to show how incredible this is sometimes, a lot of those sessions when you're recording film scores, you need top-notch musicians because you don't have time for rehearsal. It's, you know, they throw the sheet music in front of you and it's like, okay, let's go, take one. Is that pretty much accurate? That's 100% accurate. Um, And and you have to not only be a good sight reader, you have to be a good sight interpreter because a lot of times the charts are hastily written. So you need to figure out what the idea is. Uh, a lot of times they don't tell you what type of sounds you want. So, you know, if you used to see a piece of sheet music that says guitar, you know, are, is this going to be like a rock sound? Is it going to be something like a John Barry spaghetti spy sound? Is it going to be uh, a Metallica sound or, you know, a, or a classical guitar sound? So mm-hmm. you have to really look at the cue, talk to the person, have the tools ready. And be able to take, you know, sometimes they'll just write an A minor chord and they don't have any things. But no, if I'm doing it classical, it needs to be voiced this way. If I'm doing a country thing, I need to play it this way. And just be able to, to do it and knock it out because time is money and they do not play in that in that business. They want it done and they want it done right. Wow. That just fascinates me. because I, I, I have some, even though I don't play instruments and those sorts of things, I just, I'm amazed that anybody can kind of just sit down and do that so that's that's great that's great um the the next cue we're going to play comes from an unusual source at least as far as i know 
I had no idea that Frank Zappa had been involved with any kind of a film score before. You had uh, you had chosen a uh, the main theme from a film called I think it's Run Home Slow. That is correct. Written by Frank Zappa. Tell us a little bit about that. That's, that sounds like there must be a good story behind that. Well, Zappa looms large in the legacy and, and legend of my musical life, and I randomly discovered that he did this score years, years ago. Um, I got, I got into Zappo when I was probably 13 years old, just going through my, my father's album crates and it struck me immediately. Mm. Uh, and just one night watching uh, this old show called mystery science theater 3000. I don't know if you're familiar with it, no. but it was an old show in the nineties where they, they would, put these B movies on and then people would just sit there and comment about how ridiculous it was. It was late night trash TV, but it was enjoyable at the time. Yeah. But they showed this run home slow and it was, it's just this off the wall, early sixties pseudo Western freak show of a, of a B movie. But the score, <laughs> I was like, this sounds so familiar. And at the end, when they showed the credits, it was like music by Frank Zappa. I was like, I can't what it was. And it actually predates his time in the Mothers of Invention. This was this he was wanting to do wow. film scoring, and he would do commercials and TV and film scoring. And then he didn't make any money from it, ran into some legal trouble. And next thing you know, he's you know playing in a bar band to pay the bills. But then he started taking all of this movie score ideas, and a lot of the stuff from Run Home Slow became early Mothers of Invention music. And so huh. that's so he he fell into doing rock, whereas for me I was doing the rock thing and I fell into doing scoring. So it's uh it's interesting, but I love this score. It has all these great uh, sounds, these rolling marimbas that are playing this fast repeated part, but then you have this really pretty brass melody that comes over the top that's kind of soars over this you know cacophony of marimbas and cool percussion parts. Uh, I just think it's super creative and and uh i just I, I love the way i just love the way it works it, it's it's as oddball as the characters in this in the movie <laughs> well you've you've piqued my curiosity let's uh let's have a listen to this this is a the main theme from a film called run home slow and it's written by frank zappa <laughs>
when you approach scoring a movie, uh, I, I, and again, I'm not an expert, but I, I've kind of heard it described several different ways. One is that you could you could write music trying to, uh, I, I guess, reflecting what you're seeing on the screen, or you could write music uh, uh, trying to on in the character's psyche or in their mind or in their heart. Do, do, do you do you take that kind of approach, or is there something different that sparks your creativity for writing a score? Do you look at it from one angle or the other? Uh, I I try and look at it from as many different angles as possible. Uh, and the main the main thing is when I, the, for my approach, I like to to know what the director wants out of these cues and what they're trying to to get. If they want like say there's a, a cue that is just two people arguing, a man and a woman arguing. Do they want me to to choose one character to focus on the internal dialogue that they're having? Or do I need to comment on what's happening visually? Or do you want things to to match up with edits? Do you want the times to change? Do you want certain words to get more emphasis? So once I once I know what they're going for, then I can use that to, to create the sound. Um, do you, uh, yeah, maybe I'm just an, uh, an old fogey or something. I'm, I'd be curious about your opinion on this. Do you, do you think that, uh, it seems to me that film composers are almost writing too much music now. It's almost like there's wall to wall music in a lot of, in a lot of films. And I actually find that almost distracting. What, what are your thoughts on that? Have you noticed that trend or it, do you it's, say it's okay it, or it's not okay or just, it really depends on the movie and the director. Um, I, there's a lot of movies I find there's no reason to have all this extra music. And then some, I find that it actually makes it more palatable to watch the film. Mm-hmm. But if you watch, if you watch star Wars, it's pretty much wall to wall music. Yeah. Yeah, and but you don't really realize it because it's it's handled so well. So there's always like long pads and stuff underneath it. There's a there's a big trend today of music being loud all the time. That also I think does work with the way most modern movies have these super fast jump cuts and edits and everything. So it's it's kind of this in your face approach. And it, some people like that, some directors like that, and if that's what they want, that's fine. Yeah, well, My, you're also sometimes you're competing with sound effects too that have gotten oh, so sophisticated and loud, right? Yeah, of course, of course, and that all happens in post. I mean, one one of the things that I've I make a point to do is as a writer, I I say I'm going to give the director as as much as possible and then they can use their good tapes and their ideas to where they see fit where they don't want stuff and different ones will take different things to do that so it it that that really falls much more onto the director and what they're looking for out of the the way the score relates to the the film okay from my point of view yeah yeah my job Just, is to give them what they want <laughs> that's right oh yeah that's where that's where the rubber meets the road um, this next composer I have heard of, but I'm ashamed to say that I'm not, I don't know if I've heard any of their work or not, but it's, it's someone I've been interested in hearing. 
Johan uh, Johansson, as I yes. guess is the correct pronunciation. Yeah. You had uh, chosen a cue from a film called Mandy, uh, the cue being Black Skulls. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your thinking of including that in your list? Well, uh, first and foremost, for me, going and seeing Mandy last year, last uh, summer, was one of the most fun I've had in a movie theater in ages. It was huh. it was uh, just all around a great time. And the, the score that Johansson did really just blew me away because it was this wonderful mix of like dark, uh, heady metal bases and uh, classical bowed things going through giant, you know, heavy metal amplifiers with distortion and this this wonderful kind of like dark, dark atmosphere that was created through rock instruments with all this crazy uh, orchestral synth, like metallic percussion sprinkled on top of it. And it created this really fantastic mood. So I felt like I was, you know, simultaneously watching this crazy off the wall movie, but at the same time stuck in this really dark Pink Floyd like listening experience. <laughs> and I just, I absolutely loved it. Uh, you know, Hansen's Icelandic and he did a lot of, cool work on like Blade Runner 2049 mm. uh, theory of everything and he worked with this group Sun I don't know if you're familiar with them but they're a, a doom metal band so everything low tune and, and it's loud and sustainy as possible and I just I, I just loved the score I haven't ha- I haven't heard a score like that that's affected me quite like that in quite some time and so whenever that happens I, I, I it makes me very happy. Yeah, and 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 that's I take it there's that's available on on CD or for download the score. I, I believe I have it on uh, vinyl as well. Oh well, you purist you are. Okay, yes. Yeah. Well, let's have let's have a listen to this. This is from the film uh, Mandy. The cue is called Black Skulls, and it's written by Johan Johansson.
you've kind of already alluded to this uh, a little bit, but maybe you can expand on it a little bit. I'm just kind of curious. Um, are there certain film composers that have uh, influenced you a great deal in your career that either you try to, I don't want to say copy their style, but that somehow they, they influence your, your style of writing? Uh, well, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of that. One of, I mean, going back to what, you know, just talking about Williams earlier, you know, Williams is super influential because he comes out of that Wagnerian school of leitmotif writing. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with leitmotifs, but no. So back in the, the late 1800s, Wagner, when he was really getting into his massive music dramas, The Ring, Tristan and Isolde, Parsifal, all those wonderful operas. He he broke away from the tradition of, you know, here's dialogue and now song, dialogue, song, big chorus. And he started to to do what he called leitmotifs. And they were, you know, let's take The Ring, for example. Here's a small piece of music that is The Ring. Here's one that is love. Here's a motif that is this character. This is a motif of a potion. Uh, and so instead of having all these set songs and set pieces, he created this tapestry of completely interlocking motifs that help to psychologically tell the story. So you don't even have to be aware of it, hmm. but you know what's going on. And so Williams, you know, the most famous from my point of view that he ever did would have to be the, the two note motif of jaws. You hear those two notes and you know exactly what's going on. Oh, you know, yeah. You're, you're in the POV of the shark. So that idea, you know, Raiders of the lost Ark. you know, when Indy's about to do something cool when that bum, ba, dum, ba, comes in, mm-hmm. um, close encounters, the, the little descending motif that that's the alien sound, you know, these things and you don't even register it because it, it just tells you what you need to know. That's not being seen. And so the concept of that is is very important to me. And a lot of a lot of these cues that I've given you are less in that style. So what I've I've taken is I try and take that with with like the the run home slows and the Mandy's and a lot of these other you know the Goldenthal atmospheres. And I like to use motives within those sound worlds and kind of mix them together. So that that's that's a huge influence on me. Okay. I, I like, I always ask, and this, it's not normal, but what I like is <laughs> prior to principal photography, I love to be able to get a copy of the script and just get a concept of who these people are, which, which characters I believe will need a theme, which scenes are going to be set pieces of music, which one's just going to be background atmosphere. And then I take those little ideas and those possible melodies. I just write them down on, on sheet music paper. And then when I start getting uh, dailies or clips and stuff, I can start looking at it and going, oh, okay, this this doesn't work or this does work. And then I can slowly piece it together over time instead of it all just being thrown on me in the last two weeks of, you know, post-production. You've chosen one of my particular favorites uh, as one of the cues you wanted to play. This is from, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if it's from the film or the TV series, but uh, we're talking about uh, Twin Peaks. Okay. Now, now I'm going to okay. butcher this. The, the the gentleman's name. I love his music. Angelo Baldelmenti. Baldelmenti. 
Battle of De- Battle de Lamente. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, gosh, I loved. I, I, I remember I was so happy when the CD came out. You know, for the TV oh, yeah. series, and uh, and I, I loved his stuff, which was kind of unusual for me. It was a whole different style from what I typically would like, but I, uh, I just loved his stuff. And he was almost joined at the hip with David Lynch. I think he's worked on. Oh yeah. Several uh, Lynch projects. Tell us a little bit about choosing the Laura Par- uh, Palmer theme as a uh, uh, one of your favorites. Well, I was 15 when Twin Peaks came out, and it was a, a huge, huge thing for me at the time. I, I loved every minute of it. I I even was part of a, a high school group. We had like you know activity period. I don't know if they still do that anymore, but it was like student led clubs, and we had one that was on Twin Peaks and we met every week to discuss that week's episode and like what the hell's going on was a lot of it, <laughs> uh, especially for a bunch of 15 year old kids, you know, and I, I just, I fell in love with the whole sound of it, like his use of, of FN synthesis and, but with these kind of cool jazz Ellington, Billy Strayhorn type melodic, uh, progressions that went through but didn't sound jazz and it didn't sound classical it had this unique sound to it uh, unlike anything I had experienced in my brief 15 years and I still find constantly the the effect of this score on me because a lot of the chords that are used uh, you know minor sevens with a with a nine sitting on the top I put that in pretty much everything I write those type of sounds and that approach I just, it's kind of become part of my own music vocabulary. Hmm. And I just, I can't get enough of it. Uh, I, uh, I every, every time I hear that, you know, Yamaha DX7 sound, and I see that, that little thing that says Twin Peaks, it just puts me in this really state of, of, of uh, relaxation and, and musical mirth. Hmm. Uh, apologize to the audience too. Occasionally, your signal is getting muffled. But uh, uh, just again, we're I caught. I think we caught most of what you said there. But I kind of okay. went out for a little bit. Let's uh, let's listen to this. This is uh, and I guess with this is this does it make any difference? Is it from the TV or the film or? It's from the TV. It's from the original two seasons it's also in fire walk with me the film and then it's also been in the, the third season of showtime the one that just came out last oh, year okay uh and it's laura palmer is the name of the queue and because i want to pay respect to the man why don't you it's written by could you mind saying his name angelo battlemente battlemente okay good well, let's have a listen i love this piece i think you will too
what is the um and I, I don't know if this will be easy enough to answer or not, but is there is there one aspect to uh, working on a project and writing a film score? Is there like one thing in particular that seems to be more challenging or difficult than than other aspects? Is there one thing that kind of stands out? Uh, to me, the the uphill battle is finding the sound world and finding the the, the canvas, the palette that you want to work with. Mm-hmm. And that that's where I spend most of my time. And I'll I'll sit there just looking at stills or reading parts or just taking walks and just thinking about what's the best way to do that. And it sometimes it takes a long time, you know. Um, for instance, I may originally think something's going to be very string heavy, very classical approach to it. And then from watching and listening and just kind of letting it ruminate in my brain then i switch no this needs this needs acoustic baritone and instead of cello and use viola and then next thing you know once i get those sounds in and i switch it from like okay i'm going to use kind of a neoclassical approach to the harmony and make it more of a bluegrass gone evil <laughs> and, it's, and then as soon as i get that then it kind of i can i can then write very quickly uh, finding finding the concept and the world is always the hardest part. Yeah. Um, say say for instance, like there's a, a scene where they need incidental music in a grocery store, and it's like they just need some music playing. Well, that's super easy. I know what to do. I know what that music sounds like. I can just blast it out, and then it sits way low in the mix in the background, and that's done. Or if someone needs a blues song or blah blah, where it's a specific thing, I know what the, the Genre is, and when I have to come up with the complete style and approach for a whole film, that's going to be like a signature sound of it. That's that's the trickiest part. And then after that, it's just it fills fills in the blanks itself. It flows, yeah. You uh, a film I've not heard of that you uh, included in your list. Uh, let's see, uh, Yojimbo is that how it's pronounced? Uh, that is correct. Uh, a composer I'm not familiar with at all. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess here, Japanese. Uh, Sato Musari? Musaru? Musaru, yeah. Yes. Tell us a little bit about including that uh, amongst your favorites. Well, I, Yojimbo is the first of a trilogy, a samurai trilogy that Akira Kurosawa did in the early 1960s, starring uh, Toshinira Mufune, who is plays the the lead character, the this guy Sanjuro, but you really don't know his name. And these three films, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, and uh, Redbeard, were all the um, they were the catalyst to create Sergio Leone's uh, Man Without a Name trilogy. The oh wow! Clint Eastwood. So if you look at it, it's actually the exact same exact same film. You know, Yojimbo is this. Samurai without a name who's walking around ends up in this town with two warring families, which is, you know, fistful of dollars and plays both sides against each other. And that completely comes out of, out of that. Uh, Kurosawa also made Seven Samurai, the thing, okay. and turned into Magnificent Seven. So this is right. not, a, not a, a strange thing. Kurosawa, one of my favorite filmmakers. What I loved about uh, Masaru Sato's score to this was it was so fresh and so cool because in the very opening scene when Yojimbo gets to town he's walking through 
and there's this crazy little almost jazzy percussion part and a, a dog is walking with a severed hand in its mouth you know so <laughs> it, but it's it's yeah it's a crazy image but there's this kind of almost cartoony music going with it huh. and what's really interesting about you know Masaru Sato uh, staff composer in Japan so he worked on some Godzilla movies and he worked on a bunch of other Kurosawa movies and uh, but his his main influence was Mancini, and hmm. so he's he's doing, you know, he does this 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 type of writing where he's using these jazz elements and these kind of big band elements and these instruments like trombones, trumpets, and and that type of sound world. But he's also mixing in Japanese shamisens and Japanese uh, percussion to create this kind of like evil discordant. Uh, jazz meets Japanese music, which puts <laughs> Yojimbo and Sanjuro in this completely different world. And it kind of seems, you know, it can seem distracting at first if you really hone in on it. But then if you pay attention to to watching, you know, the main character, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like it's commentary on how absurd he sees the situation, how he sees to play it. I think it's just, I think it's really really a great score it, it made a big impact on me when i saw it like in my early 20s oh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this I, I i love some of the traditional japanese sounds and uh music so it'll be interesting to hear this marriage of the two genres this is uh from a film called yojimbo it's the main title from that film written by sato masaru let's have a listen Thank you. 
kind of looking into the future. I'm kind of curious. Would there be a, is there some kind of a dream assignment out there that you would love to uh, to, to do? Right, uh, you know, what dream assignment of a film you'd like to write the score for, either a, a genre or working with a particular director or anything like that? Mm, I, I think uh, that's that's a that's a fun question. I mean, obviously, it'd be fun to to work with you know, a Scorsese or a Coppola or someone like that. But yeah. I think I'd probably best uh, best work with, you know, someone more off the wall like a Lynch or a David Fincher, someone like that, um, where I could get into the, the more weird colors and the abstractness that I, I enjoy. So um, it's a good question, though. I mean, I think I think doing... You know, doing something that that was like a long running thing is very interesting. Like to have a have a contract to do like Game of Thrones or Breaking Ben. this five years or ten years of development. That's very appealing to me. At the same time, it could probably get tedious. I'd have to talk to the composers that did it. But I like being the thought of being able to immerse yourself into one story and one set of characters that deeply. That that sounds like a very cool thing. And then at the same time, I'd love to just blast out a really fun, you know, pseudo horror movie like Seven or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because we've really experienced an explosion in content, haven't we? With oh yeah, all the different uh, vehicles for distribution for for you know between the streaming and cable channels and you know people like uh, Netflix and Amazon doing original content and that sort of thing that. There's more opportunity. I mean, it's, I'm sure the competition is still fierce, but there certainly are more opportunities for people like yourself to hook on to one of those. Yeah, I don't know how it would be doing like a, a limited series like a Game of Thrones or something, because it must be hard to keep keep it original throughout the you know every episode. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you develop some themes that you revisit, but yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you know, it's you, that's the whole thing. You have the challenge is coming up with the original themes that are are good and can resonate over the course of that long and also have the written in such a way that they have the ability to be modified and changed to fit the, the mm. changing story yeah and that that really that really puts an onus on getting those original themes correctly and getting that that what i was talking about earlier the concept getting that down to where it's 100 percent locked in i mean you look at, you know, just taking Thrones, for example, if you look at it from the costumer's point of view, there is a limited palette of stuff they can do costume wise. But you watch that show and throughout the entire run of six, seven seasons, you never get sick of the costumes It never gets tedious or boring. They find fascinating and beautiful ways to keep working within this one world. And I hmm. look at the, the music as being the same sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely a stylized and definitely period. But there's a lot you can do within those limitations. Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Yojimbo was kind of a, uh, uh, a the genesis, I guess, if you will, for the, uh, the no name man with no name series of Italian westerns and those sorts of things. You also uh, chose uh, some cues from the good and the bad and the ugly. I did. Uh, I think I think two different ones: the main theme and then also ecstasy of gold. Yes. Written written by the maestro Ennio Morricone, who I think must be one of the most prolific composers. I don't know how many hundreds of scores he's written, but I know it's well, way up there. 
He claims that he stopped counting at 600, and that was in the mid-70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, tell us a little bit about including those uh, uh, on your list. Well, I got into the Morricone from a very backdoor way, which kind of seems to be how I get into most things these days. But uh, as a young child in the 80s, uh, with a, a lust and love for all things loud, fast, and heavy that was playing on the radio at the time, I had the, the luxury of seeing... Uh, the band Metallica on the Master of Puppets tour. And hmm. they start every one of their shows off with the Ecstasy of Gold. They've done hmm. that since the, since they started, and they do it today. And then I just remember the lights went out, and then this arpeggiated classical thing came on, and then an English horn solo. I'm like, what's going on? This is the weirdest thing. you know. I'm, I'm there to see heavy. And this beautiful building classical piece comes up, and I had no idea what it was, but it stuck with me. Uh, eventually, I got a live album, and it had written at the very top, intro, Ecstasy of Gold, Ennio Morricone. I'm like, what's the Ecstasy of Gold? Who's Ennio Morricone? It led hmm. me to go go to, to the local uh, VHS rental store, and I ended up getting good, the bad, and the ugly, and I just flipped. That was the first movie stuff as a high where, where I said I you you, you kind of you're you're, you're breaking up a little bit there. Hang on, if you wouldn't mind repeating after you uh, went to the store. So, uh, so I went to the to the the video store and I checked out the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I watched it. It's like this blew me away as a high schooler. I'm like, I all of this, that opening thing, this, you know, the telecaster with the reverb. I'm like, I have that sitting here. And then he did a huge orchestra to do the super lush, you know, uh, corn gold, Aaron Copeland Americana, Magnificent Seven thing. And so he just did this crazy stuff with bull whips and chains. And, you know, and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and the ecstasy of gold is one of my favorite scenes. It's the very end. It's the the famous triple uh, stand down with the three guys staring at each other, and they play the entire cue. Uh, Leone loved the music he was writing so much that when they filmed that scene, he had it blasting on loudspeakers. They recorded it before they even did the scene. And they played huh. the entire cue with him getting closer and closer to each of the, the characters' faces to where they were reacting to the music in real time. Fascinating. Uh, it just made... I can't I can't talk enough about Morricone. I could go through a gazillion different cues from different movies. Uh, and it, he just... He really is probably my, my top guy. As yeah. As no, he's amazing. He's certainly in in, in my top uh, uh, top five for sure. Well, let's have yeah. a listen to this. These are two different cues, and the film is the good and the bad and the ugly. The cue is the well, the main title, and then also another cue called Ecstasy of Gold, written by the maestro Ennio Morricone.
Well, looking to the future, is there a anything that you can tell us about what you uh, potentially might have in the pipeline uh, at least as far as film scores are concerned or or anything else well i'm uh, about to start work on a photography uh, this summer and so and it's an it's an interesting story because it's very music heavy uh, which i i appreciate it's um the i just worked with you know miles Dolek, who you had on earlier talking about hollowed ground so this is right. his next feature oh okay and, yeah and this is it revolves around a dinner party that goes incredibly awry, but it's all based around a bunch of opera lovers. So each hmm. of the characters speaks at length about their favorite opera composers. So I've I've been studying a lot of Puccini and Cherubini and Alban Berg, uh, you know Wagner, all all the Berdy, all the great opera guys. And the concept right now is for it to be this mixture of opera, operatic melodies, harmonies, and drama mixed with like a Nine Inch Nails ministry. But that sounds fascinating, uh, Clifton. Uh, that uh, Miles Dolak never fails to uh, surprise me, and so that's that, I'm, that's something we can look forward to. I think that'll be released next year, correct? Uh, I would assume springtime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Clifton, let, let me tell you, I I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat today, and I I really sincerely appreciate you making time to uh, to join us and sharing some of your favorites and also your insights in the film scoring. I, I just found it fascinating. I, I again want to just thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me, uh, folks. That's going to wrap it up for this uh, for this episode. My thanks not only to our guests but also to all of you for listening. We always appreciate it. Please like and share when you have an opportunity and uh, with that there's only one thing left to say and that's simply this my name's Frank Wilson my time's up I thank you for yours thanks for listening to What's the Score